perhaps for the final time, Jesus says, one more time, follow me. And so that's uh, without uh, much deliberation that became the title of this morning's message. And I pray that that is the call that you hear this morning from God's word. So our context uh, shows us that the disciples, they went on a fishing trip. They were in Galilee. They were waiting for Christ. After Christ was raised, he said to his disciples, wait for me in Galilee. Wait there. Don't go anywhere else. There's some stuff that has to happen before I go up to heaven. And so he said to them, wait there. And they go on a fishing trip. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing because he was a really good fisherman. This little fishing trip, they fished all night. And it's probably a trip that I was pointing out last week, probably had a lot of dark clouds over Peter in terms of his last public, the last time he publicly mentioned Jesus' name, he was denying Christ, right? He, he was carrying with him probably this sense of separation and, 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 and guilt for what he had done publicly on behalf of Christ. And uh, Jesus points out their empty nets. They fished all night and they caught nothing. And Jesus points that out to them. How is your trip going? How many fish do you have? And they say, none. And so he points out their failure, and then he fills their nets, which is a miracle uh, that repeats the miracle of the first time Jesus called them to follow, right? He said, cast your nets again, and they said, well, master, we've been fishing all night, but at your word, we will cast them one more time. And then the nets were full, and they were blown away. They realized, this is Messiah. This is the guy we've been looking for, and so they follow, and, uh, and they go tell Peter, and they say, right, we found the, the Messiah, and here, the same thing happens again. He fills their nets once again. And the fish theme actually carries on throughout this entire appearance. They caught no fish. Then Jesus fills the nets. Then they haul the fish in. Then when they get to the beach, Jesus is cooking breakfast. Guess what he's cooking? Fish. And then, so this whole fish theme reminds us that the way Christ appeared here is to drive home the point, fishing being a symbol of winning hearts and minds to the Lord. Remember when he said to Peter, you're, you're going to be a fisher of man from now on. And so John returns to this theme at the very end to remind the reader and the listener that Jesus is creating for himself fishers of men. That's what he's all about. He's crafting fishers of men. And when they go back to fish and they catch nothing, Jesus seizes on that opportunity to drive back home the point to them. You will no longer be fishing fish. You're going to be fishing men. And so Christ um, appears in that way specifically, John says in verse 14, he revealed, he revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead for that purpose. And so our text this morning, that's what's going on, and this is the last interaction that John records for us in his gospel. Our outline is simple. We're going to see in our text that the weak are restored to Christ. After that, we're going to see that the restored are commissioned. And we're going to see that the commissioned must follow. Okay? So let's track with John and, and see what happens with Peter. As promised, I said, you got to come back this week. And maybe that's why more of you are here. Um, but I said, if you are identifying too much with Peter this morning, you feel that weight of failure. You feel that weight of missed opportunity. You feel that weight of being what you might label as a, a poor Christian. I, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. I messed up. I let Christ down. Um, maybe you were feeling that weight, and I said, I didn't want to give away this morning too much because what happens is amazing, and you got to come back and find out how Jesus treats Peter. And so I'm glad you're here this morning. But as promised, 
So when Peter pulls up the nets, he senses that Christ is not finished with him yet. Christ takes his empty nets and he says, you cast them one more time on the right-hand side of the boat and you're going to see what happens. And Peter, as soon as that happens, he abandons the boat, he swims into shore, and he just can't wait to see Christ. Because I think Peter senses here, Jesus has not abandoned his first call on me. He's not thrown me off to the side because I so badly failed him. And so they eat breakfast. And verse 15, John has the order here very clear for us. When they had finished breakfast, it's good to have a serious talk on a full stomach, right? Don't do that before breakfast. Uh, Don't have that big, serious, emotional talk unless you really need to. So your stomach's full, okay? Most of you probably totally understand what I'm talking about. And so after breakfast, Jesus gets down to business with Peter. Jesus says to him, takes him off to the side. And and the others are around. They're within eyesight or earshot or whatever. And he says to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I don't know if he's talking about more than the fishing nets. Do you love them more than that? Do you love me more than the other disciples? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the comparison there is, but let's look at the bulk of that question. Do you love me? And I think right here, Peter must have just had a pit in his stomach. He must have known this was coming. Like Jesus is not just going to brush over because Jesus actually predicted that Peter was going to deny him, right? Peter said, I'm going to go to the death with you, with you, Jesus. I'm going to die with you. I'll suffer with you. And and he says, you're not going to suffer with me, at least not right now. You're going to deny me before the rooster crows in the morning. And so this is very open. And Peter must be thinking, here comes the big, I told you so. Here comes the big, you blew it. Here comes the big, I told you you were going to deny me. Where's your pride at, Peter? Smarten up. When are you going to get humble? When are you going to pay attention to what I've said? And so he asks this question, and Peter senses, like, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole here with Jesus, and we're going to go a couple rounds behind the woodshed. Jesus is finally going to, you know. And so he must have this pit in his stomach, and the question must just ache on his conscience. Do you love me? And I feel like Peter probably even heard his own voice echo here when the servant girl said, are you uh, one of this man's disciples? And Peter said to her, no, I'm not. And then two more times around the fire, somebody said, I saw you with this man. You are one of his disciples. And then Peter went so far as to invoke a curse upon himself. I swear to you, I do not know the man. I think he had this voice echoing through his head before he answers Jesus And yet I think he musters these words. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. (laughs) I don't know if he felt a little bit sheepish saying it, but he squeaks the words out. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Says to him again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And a third time, that's got to be painful. A third time Jesus says to him, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? I think at this point, Peter's recognizing that he is trying to prove himself beyond what he can sustain. What else do you have but your words when you have so badly failed? I mean, all you want to do is prove yourself, right? All you want to do is get up and get another chance. You don't want to talk about it anymore. You already realize you've already failed so bad with your words in the first place. His first proclamation of loyalty fell on its face. So he's wondering, why is Jesus, is he testing me here? And Peter recognizes that he can't sustain any proof. And so he appeals to the only thing that he can, which is Jesus' divine knowledge. He believes in Christ full-heartedly here. But he says to him, Lord, you know everything. 
you know that I love you. I, like, I, I can't prove it to you. In, in fact, my track record is poor. There's nothing you can look back on in my life for assurance in what I'm saying right now. So Christ, you're going to have to reach into your own divine knowledge because I, I love you. I mean, you know what it's like to, to fail the Lord. If you're like me, you, you blow it. Deep down in your heart, the only reason it hurts so bad is because you love Christ. It's not because you've turned your back on him. It's because you failed. It's because you were weak. It's because you're a human being. When we taught on that, what I tried to drive home was that we are all Peter denying Christ. He's not the unique one. We are all there. And the reason it hurts so much is because we love Christ, because he's transformed us, because he's given new life. And so that pain, that bitterness that you feel when you fail Christ is good. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that you belong to him. And so Peter says, I have nothing to offer you, Christ, in terms of proof. You know all things. You know that I love you. I love this because, yeah, Peter can't reach into, well, didn't you, didn't you see what I did? You know, I followed you for three years because in Peter's mind, all that went out the window when he denied Christ. Everything he thinks he had done for him went out the window. And I think that's exactly what Christ wanted to happen. When Christ commissioned Peter, and we're going to get to that, he did not want Peter relying on anything at all that he had done for Christ. He didn't want him looking back on his successful ministry with Jesus. Well, I walked on water for you, Jesus. I got out of the boat. I did all this stuff. I was like, no, he wants that all to be wiped away. He needed Peter. He wanted Peter to be at this ground level, this base feeling, this total humility. And Christ is so expertly and lovingly working in this moment in Peter's life right now. I mean, it's got to be painful. Peter's being squeezed like an apple through an apple press. He's, Christ is extracting from Peter exactly what he wants. It's painful to go through this restorative process. It's not quick and easy. It's not just, oh great, I'm glad you said, now I need a bunch of stuff done. Christ is so lovingly working with this failed disciple and letting him feel the full weight of his guilt, letting him feel that despair, that pain, that ache. Christ is lovingly doing this. He's, he's an expert. Okay, he knows what Peter needs. It's for, it's for Peter's own good. What I want you to see here and what Christ is doing is that he, he affects a threefold confession of Peter's love which perfectly matches Peter's threefold denial of Christ. Jesus is not unaware. He's not haphazard here. He asks Peter three times to mirror the same three times that he was asked if he knew Christ. And here, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing on the line here. I mean, now they're just having breakfast on the beach. When it really mattered, when Peter could say, yeah, I belong to this man, when the trial was going on, when it was the middle of the night, when it really mattered, you think that's the time when Peter needed to confess him. And yet Christ here in the cool of morning with breakfast on the beach behind them says, do you love me? I mean, isn't it easy to confess him then? Oh, well, what's Peter going to say? Oh, I don't know. Are they watching? No, they're in private now. He has full peace and, and uh, security in confessing this. And yet Christ does this for the inward on Peter. It, he didn't need Peter to stand up for him that night. Didn't need it. He had it. He had it all himself. He knew God was with him. And what he's doing here is for Peter's sake. Jesus is not insecure. He's not like, you know, that really hurt that night. That was, that was, like, Peter, we have a serious problem here. Jesus is not insecure. In fact, Peter speaks better than he knows, and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus is not insecure. He's not emotionally deficient. He doesn't need uh, us to pump his tires. What he's doing here is for Peter's own sake so that Peter can get to the place where he needs to get. And so when you go through that process with the Lord, it is for your own good. It is for the restoration of your life in him. I want you also to, uh, to ignore what you, what you might think of as Jesus elevating Peter here above the rest. Some folks, maybe you have a Catholic background or maybe you know Catholic theology and passages like this are, t- are taken to show that Peter was actually elevated above the rest of the disciples. He became, in essence, here the first pope. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, see what we see, I think what we see here is Christ reaching down to the most failed disciple who had fallen the furthest. He's the only one who failed Christ, as I said last week, anywhere near what Judas did. I mean, if Judas were still alive, Peter and him could probably sit down and say, yeah, we both messed up big time, didn't we? Peter's the only one who can remotely relate to the sorrow that Judas felt. Unfortunately, Judas did not come back to Christ for restoration. He went and hung himself in worldly guilt. Yet Peter was living here, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to restore, I've got to reach pretty far down to restore you. All these other disciples were like, man, Peter, you messed up big time, bro. And they don't need this personal restoration here that, that Christ offers Peter. He's reaching down to the most failed disciple, not elevating him above the rest. And I want us to again see that, that we are the failed Peters. We have let Christ down on almost every occasion, and yet he comes not to ignore what we have done, not to pretend it didn't happen, but to actually overcome it. And that's where you see this threefold confession that he says, Peter, I have recognized your trifold failure and I am now establishing you in a trifold confession of your love for me. Hear this, the mission of Christ does not depend on the perfection of those who serve. The mission of Christ does not depend on the perfection of those who serve but it does depend on his ability to equip and restore those who have failed. I'll say that one more time. The mission of Christ does not depend on the perfection of those who serve, but on Jesus' ability to equip and restore those who have failed. That's the identity of the church. We are not the most gifted and talented people that Christ said, well, I could really use them out of the world. I'm going to redeem them because that talent, I just cannot do without that. In fact, the most useful people for God are the ones who have abandoned their self-confidence. They've abandoned looking at their track record. They've abandoned looking at their own holiness. They've abandoned looking at all the things that they have done for Christ. Until you get to that point where Peter looks back and has nothing to show Christ, until you get to that point, you will not be useful for Christ because you will continually look inward for your own assurance. You'll continually look inward for what you can do for Christ. Peter became so effective because his confidence finally rested outside of himself. He was done confessing his own loyalty. He was done proclaiming his own love. When Christ did this to him, Peter finally recognized what the big deal is. When he went out in the book of Acts, he became a fierce and fire-filled preacher because his confidence was totally in the work of Christ. And man, was he on fire because he didn't care about what he had done, failures that he had said. We, we know in scripture that Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. Do you ever feel like your guilt is brought back on you? Until you recognize that Christ does not judge you based on what you have done or not done for him, 
that guilt will sit with you. The reason we are free is because we can stare our accusations straight in the face and say, that has no hold on me. Christ does not judge me based on my failure. You're only free when you can look face first into your failures and say, those do not belong to me. Christ has forgiven me. If you're still tiptoeing around wondering if your guilt is going to be, you're going to be judged based on your failure, you need to come face to face with it this morning as Peter did. And you need to confess to Christ, I have nothing to offer you except my changed heart. I have nothing uh, but what you have done in my life. So the weak are restored. Hallelujah for that. Number two, the restored are commissioned. I intentionally skipped over Jesus' um, instruction to him because here we're going to see that as a pattern, what needs to happen with those who are restored. And so Jesus uh, hears Peter's confession and he calls him to a corresponding task. That's kind of cool, right? In other words, Peter's love for Jesus is going to be exhibited in how he, what? What does Jesus tell Peter to do? Feed my, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's love for Jesus is going to be exhibited in how he serves Jesus Christ. And so in the church, we need to sort of hang on to this tension a little bit. Jesus does not depend on what you have done or not done for him. Yet at the same time, our love for him corresponds with how we serve him. We don't serve him out of the feeling of our own loyalty or our own ability, but we do serve him out of the love and gratitude that we have for him. So what's the task? What's Peter called to? Feed my lamb, my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. (coughs) Take care of them, protect them, feed them. Jesus says, I have sheep. In, In John chapter 10, Jesus talked about being the great shepherd, the great shepherd. He talked about the hired hand. He said, the shepherd cares for the sheep, but the hired hand doesn't care at all. He sees danger coming like a wolf or a bear, and he hops the fence and he runs so that the sheep get torn to shreds while the hired hand goes on to safety and gets a new job in another town. The hired hand does not care for the sheep. Jesus says to Peter, I am the great shepherd and I care for my sheep. And he even told us, I lose none of my sheep. I will care for them until the very end. And here he in trust that he transfers that trust to Peter, to a man who has denied Jesus. What confidence does Christ have in those that he has restored? And so he says, you need to serve them. You need to love them. You need to care for the sheep. And it kind of reminds me, um, I'll get to that in a second, but notice here that he doesn't give Peter an office or a position. Oh, so you're loving and you're the chief apostle? great, I've got a corner office in Jerusalem that uh, you can move into on Monday morning. You're going to be chief elder. You are going to be Pope Peter. Uh, You are going to be, you know, Pastor Pete. He doesn't give him any title. There's no title associated here with Peter. He says, if you love me, you need to do something. I'm going to call you to action. And it reminds me, and I was going to say, of, I don't know if you ever listened to DC Talk, but there's a song, Love is a Verb. Love is a, love is a, love is a verb. Okay, now you remember it all, don't you? <laughs> no, DC Talk, Christian hip-hop in the 90s. Um, Jesus calls Peter to a verb, to a service, to an act, not to an office. And uh, I was talking to somebody this week, 
um, about, a, about a very faithful Christian man in this area. He serves at another church, and uh, somebody at a lunch asked him, are, are you one of the elders at this church? And although he most certainly is, he looked kind of quizzically at this other person, and he said, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. And that was just such a testimony to me and a reminder of our need to be uh, where our identity lies. It's not in our title or what we think that we have earned in terms of the church. I mean, so many people treat the church as a sanctified corporate setting, a ladder to climb and competition and, and comparison. And there's none of that in the church. There ought to be none of that anyway. Peter here is not given an office who would become arguably just the most well-known Christian of all time. Probably even more so than Paul, especially if you look at the influence that the Catholic Church has had. Peter's fame um, would, would be vast. And yet here he's told and called to a simple task, to love the sheep. Let's remember then that the early church would be discipled, taught, and led um, by the work and word of the early apostles. These failed and, and sometimes messed up dudes would become the leaders of this early church. They were qualified not by their record of service, but qualified by the grace and the work of Jesus Christ and loyalty to him alone. It doesn't actually take all that much to become a very faithful servant to the church of Christ. You need to have Christ as your number one, and you need to have experienced the grace and the restoration of him alone and so the church was uh, initially and importantly established on the work and witness of these apostles. And we need to insist on that as the church in the 21st century. When people will look back on and say, how can these, how can these fishermen really know what Jesus wanted the church to be? I mean, we, kinda, we, we need to reinterpret the Old Testament. I don't think they had it all right. I mean, we need to go, go back and sort of question their... We need to insist as the church in the 21st century that the apostles had it right, that Christ commissioned them... His Holy Spirit empowered them to write the words that we have, and we rely on that. We trust in that. We are a church at the end of a long line of people who held up this book and said, this is the trustworthy message of God, written by the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Christ himself. And the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament is true, and it's divine, and it's God-given. And so we're thankful for that. It's already been laid out, and we just need to keep walking it. We need to keep following. So let's not miss, and I'm going to reiterate here, that Peter is, is to take up the work of Christ because of his love for Christ. If you're thinking about, well, I'd love to do more. I'd love to do more good in the community. I'd love to serve the church. Uh, you know, I'd like to be more well-known in the church. We need first to become thoroughly Christian in our understanding of serving the church. If you are not self-aware that you love Christ because of what he's done for you, you will not be a long-term servant of the church because you will become frustrated. You will burn out. You will, you will become exasperated. Uh, you will exhaust yourself. If, if love for Jesus Christ is not the fuel uh, that propels you in your ministry inside the church, um, then just wait. Don't go there yet. Because a lot of people walk away from the church really burned because they've never really experienced that deep love of Christ, that personal relationship, and they get in and they get signed up for all kinds of stuff and they give, 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 and they lay themselves down and they think, what is this all for? Because they're looking to you and me for validation. 
They're looking to you and me for restoration. They're looking to you and me for the energy that they need to serve. Jesus here is one-on-one with Peter and says, do you love me? And if you love me, then you can serve me. How beautiful is that? We serve the church because we believe in the work of Christ. We believe his word. We believe in the advance of his kingdom. And we pray and we humbly ask that, that, God, that God would establish and further his kingdom through our meager efforts. That's why we serve. Because we believe what Christ has done. Not because the church is just another good social activity. Not just because the church is just another good, um, you know, a philanthropic organization, helping the poor, etc., etc. We do it because we believe in the lordship and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And then Jesus kind of, in his third exhortation to Peter, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He says, feed my sheep. And then he goes on. He says, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, this could seem very cryptic. And in fact, it's almost a little bit, well, yeah, that's what happens to old people. They, they can't walk as well and they need others to dress them. And what does he mean? And, and John adds his own commentary in brackets here. In verse 19, this is, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. It's possible that this gospel was actually already written um, after Peter was martyred. And so John, when he goes to write this, in hindsight, he looks back and he says, oh yeah, Jesus had that comment about his arms being stretched out. Um, Sources outside of the Bible tell us that Peter was crucified um, just like he said he wanted to be with Christ, right? He said, I will go to death with you. And Jesus said, no, you won't. I'm doing this alone. Um, but he says, you won't right now. And so Peter went on, um, extra biblical sources tell us to be crucified. But because he was so humble and so afraid of being associated that closely with Christ, he, he demanded that they crucify him upside down as if that torture couldn't get any worse. He and his wife both, uh, we learn, were, were executed in this fashion. And so what, what in essence he's saying is that you need to come and serve me. Come and do the work that I've given you to do. And he says, but for you, the time is short, Peter. Now, actually, he lived about 30 years with that prediction hanging over his head or at least spurring him on maybe. But either way, Christ gives a warning here that is true of all of us, though we might not have a prophecy to fulfill it. But our time is short. We don't have... 50 years necessarily. You may not even have two years. You may not have five. We don't know the timing and hands of the Lord. But what he's saying to Peter is, this is your work until you go home to be with me. This is what you will be doing. And there is nothing else I've called you to do until then. And it's a short amount of time. What he's saying is that when you're young, you can go and do whatever you want. You can serve the Lord freely. You can strategize for him. You can move for him. You can church plant. You can preach. You can love your neighbor. You can go to work and proclaim the truth of the gospel to your coworker. You can work while you're young. But he's saying a time is coming when they're going to bind you and they're going to carry you where you do not want to go. And then your time for serving me and kingdom building will be over. All of us have a very short amount of time on this earth where God has commissioned us to do his work. There will be no gospel missions in heaven. There will be no missionary. There'll be no church planting. There'll be no preachers. All the work will be done. 
And so now is the time to work. We need to heed that. And it does foreshadow Peter's execution. So the restored are commissioned. Number three, um, the commissioned, these disciples must follow Christ. And so Jesus finally repeats these words that they had heard up to three years earlier. It's an amazing bookend to the mission, uh, the, um, the ministry of Jesus Christ. At the beginning, he calls the disciples and he says, follow me. And then here, three years later, he says, follow me. As in, you haven't really fully followed me yet. That was your training. Now it's time to follow me. It's this amazing bookend um, that really opens up the definition of what that means, what Christ is asking. It's still the call that Jesus um, issues to those who hear and those who believe. You must follow. After saying these things, he said to him, follow me, follow me. And I want to ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you been restored to him? Then follow. I ask and I urge you from the scriptures to follow Christ. Take distinct action in your life today, tomorrow, this week to follow Jesus Christ in your vocation, in your work, in your entertainment, in your marriage, in your school. Follow Christ. That command is not uh, too sophisticated for the young. And it is not too simple for the old. It is the call on every believer who knows Christ to follow. And that looks very different as we're going to see. And I'm so glad that we can, that John is wise to show this, uh, that the Spirit has put these two together because it looks very different for everybody. Not everyone has to become, you know, church planter, missionary, uh, street evangelist. I don't know what following looks like for you. This is why I said it in everything. Let every little decision you make be a conscious step toward Jesus Christ. And I don't mention entertainment mistakenly or ignorantly. I know that we need to make better choices to follow Christ in our entertainment. I know we need to make better choices in our workplace to follow Christ. I know we as a church, even on Sunday mornings, need to take deeper steps to follow Christ. And I pray that we are open to hearing what that looks like. And so most of us right now are exactly like Peter. He turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He turns around, sees John there, and John adds this little bit about connecting who the disciple whom Jesus loved was, and we're not going to get too much into that, but it's very likely John who leaned against Christ during the Last Supper. It's John whom is the disciple who Jesus loved. He was there on the fishing trip. He's the one who wrote the book. So he sees John, and he said, uh, Lord, what about this man? Aren't so many of us like Peter? Right now, aren't we thinking like Peter? I'm already doing a bunch of stuff for you, God. I'm already really kind of following you, but like I know people who are not following you. You might want to put your attention to them. You might want to go visit their office, okay? I know people who can follow you like way better than they are. What about this man? And Jesus' response, I'll paraphrase, is none of your business. Peter. It's none of your business. He says, what if it is to you that, that he remains until I come? What if he just lives forever until I come back? What if he's the uh, invincible disciple? Hmm? What's that to you, Peter? And I think this is extra emotionally charged because Peter just had his own death predicted. And, and Jesus is like, follow me. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I'm going to die? What about him? And that's why the comparison is so apt here. Jesus says, he does not make it easy for Peter. He says, yeah, you're going to die by crucifixion. He might live forever. What are you going to do, Peter? What is that to you? It's none of your business. Jesus says, I am the master. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm the head of the church. I will decide who goes where and when and for what purpose. It is not for you to decide that. And so he shuts Peter's mouth so quickly on this. And then there's this rumor that spread that John actually was invincible, that he did live forever. Or uh, some believe that Christ was serious and that Christ actually did come back because John is dead now. And so John's like, you got to read this, okay? He says, okay, there's this nasty rumor that went around that he was not going to die. John's like, I was there. He, he said, if it is my will. Okay, words are very important. He didn't say, I'm going to make John live forever, Peter. He just said, hypothetically, if that were my decision, that would be none of your business. Okay, and so John just clears up that little potential misunderstanding. I'm not invincible. He did live the longest, though. He lived the longest. And so I think Jesus, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek here or a little bit foreshadowing, John lived into his old age. He lived until the end, almost, of the first century. And uh, as far as my knowledge goes, I think he wrote more than any other disciple, excluding, obviously, Paul and Luke, actually. But Luke wasn't one of the 12. At any rate, John uh, carried on a a very intense writing ministry and pastoral ministry. Uh, Peter's call was different. That's the point. And you know what? This persecution that... um, that Peter was going to face and maybe thinking, well, what about John? Like, is he just going to have it easy? Uh, we know from, again, extra biblical sources that John did not have it easy. He was uh, exiled. I think they tried to boil him and he survived. Okay, it was not easy for John either. And in fact, for all of us, 2 Timothy 3 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And we think, well, that's just for people who live in like China, right? All who live, who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. We will all, like these disciples, in some way, take up our cross and say, I will follow you no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And so the answer, my friends, to this call to follow me is not an easy one, but it's one that has to be made without comparison to other people. You can't base how you answer that question on, well, what about Joe? What about my mom? What about my brother? What about my spouse? Like, they need to follow you way more than me. You you cannot make that decision based on comparison with other people. Christ calls you. So he says to Peter, he says, what if it is my will that he remains until I come? What is that to you? And then right here in the Greek, it's the singular. He says, you follow me. You. You. Me. You singular. You follow me. Not you go hide in a church that's doing pretty well and then you'll be fine because the group is following me. Not the case. You, singular, must follow Jesus Christ. And I think this is why first Jesus elicited these confessions because on an individual level, you have nothing except your relationship with Christ to motivate you. This is why Jesus first took Peter and he said, do you love me? Peter said three times, yes, I love you. Good, then there's no reason for you not to follow me. No matter what anybody else is doing in your town, at your workplace, wherever in your family, you already told me you love me. That's all you need. 
His confession is important here because it's the basis upon which Jesus asks Peter to serve. It's not a group dynamic. We serve in the church together, absolutely. We are a family. We are a body. We are there to build each other up. We're not a bunch of individualistic, competitive, look how well I'm doing it. But the the question is that when you come to God's word, when you come to Jesus Christ, you must answer that question for yourself. For yourself. Um, the church will advance the kingdom and fulfill its call when its believers respond to this simple command to follow. And do you know what following means? It means put off your ambition for self-making. Put off your ambition for building up your kingdom. Put off your ambition to make yourself great and big and put on ambition for kingdom building. Uh, Joshua 24 is probably a well-known passage to many of you. Joshua says, Choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm, and I'm very proud and, and thankful to say that um, that's a decision that Shan and I have made. Um, as imperfectly and poorly as we carried out in these last two years, we have really established some things at our home to say, we are going to serve the Lord. Our kids are getting old enough to recognize what that means and to see little habits and decisions we make in our life uh, that that show there's a following taking place. And, and don't look at me as an example. Don't look at me as the pinnacle of any of that. But I'm saying, I, I've recognized the importance of this and that there is no life in Christ without following him. And so I encourage you and exhort you to do the same. And so he says, you need to follow me. And then in verse 24, we'll close with this. My conclusion heading is, all of this was true. John finally makes overt self-reference to himself. Uh, he says, this is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things. And he says, now I suppose, finally uses the first person. He's like, okay, my identity is kind of out here. And he makes this musing. But we need to recognize that the words of scripture, they did not come from private dreams or revelation. They did not come in some secret meeting. They were done in, in public. Everybody knew what had happened. John says, we know that his testimony is true. Others have verified what I've said and what I saw, and all of it is according to facts. And he says that all of the work um, of Christ, sorry, not all of it, but much of what he has done is written in these books. And he says, now there are many other things, and I love the way he closes this. This is just like a writer's musing. He's got this quirky little glean in his eye where he says, if you recorded everything he did, the world would not be a big enough library to contain what he had done. I think it's a, it's a, it's a humble tip of his hat to Christ saying that this whole book that I've written is just the tiniest little offering to the honor that's due his name. But I think it's also a wider confession and an and implication of what he said in the beginning, which was that, Everything that was made was made through him. Uh, was nothing made that was not made through Christ? In other words, he's the agent of creation. So every act of creation in this universe, every plant that comes out of the ground, can be rightly attributed to be a work of Jesus Christ. So his works are in some ways near infinite, and he's almost hitting the nail on the head here. And finally, I think it's a prophetic look forward. Because the works and activity of the church are also the work of Jesus Christ himself. The work of Christ is ongoing. It is continual. It is dynamic. It is changing. It is moving. It is progressing. It is growing. 
and the work of Christ in the world today, the way the church is making progress and growing and expanding in dark places is a testament to the work of Jesus Christ alone. Not to the leaders, not to the great preachers, none of that. It's attributed to Jesus Christ. And so he says, I suppose if you were to write down every work of God, of Jesus Christ, we would run out of paper. We would run out of shelf space. Christ is so worthy and so powerful that that there is no human expression that can possibly contain him. Friends, I hope that the chapter that is written on 2018, 19, 20, 21, and on in Smith's Falls would be a long chapter. I pray that the works of Christ in this area, in this church, and in the churches in this region that proclaim his truth would be a long chapter. Everything that you do in the name of Jesus Christ is a work that he has made for you. It's a work that belongs to him. I pray it's a long chapter full of amazing testimony. Um, As we close John this morning, I want to emphasize that we are just getting started here at Evergreen Chapel. Uh, We are just beginning to recognize what it means to serve Christ by proclaiming the truth to the community. Um, And so I encourage you and I exhort you to if this, if this excites you, then stick around for a bit and we're going to learn what it means to serve the Lord together and to make disciples and to, uh, to subdue the nations in the name of Christ. And so I pray that we would apply his truth in every sphere of our life as we go forward in his scriptures and um, as we grow together.